Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 78, September 12th to September 18th, 1862. Last week, we set up the events that will take us to Antietam. South Mountain was a key Union victory, but it was spoiled with the loss of Harper's Ferry. I want to spend very little in terms of introduction because this is going to be yet another busy episode for us, so let's get into the significance of South Mountain, which in turn will get us into the cornfield to start the battle. Before we get into that, though, I do want to talk about our Patreon content, just so you are aware. We did another movie review that should be posted on the Patreon feed. This is A Friendly Persuasion, which is a Gary Cooper movie. And if that sounds like something that interests you, make sure to check that out on the Patreon feed. And of course, once again, your support for the show is greatly appreciated. It may surprise you to know that Lee was ready to give up on his invasion following the result of South Mountain. It seemed that McClellan had finally got the better of him. The fall of Harper's Ferry, though, would be crushing for the Union and elation for the Confederates. Lee would set up a defensive position along Antietam Creek and wait for Jackson to join his army. Franklin's Sixth Corps on September 15th, had advanced toward McClaws, their objective having been to cut these troops off, if you recall from last week's episode. With the fall of Harper's Ferry, it was deemed unnecessary to attack, allowing for the rebels to get away. Franklin was much like his commander and benefactor, George B. McClellan. He was very cautious, and in this situation, he misses a golden opportunity to break up the potential reinforcements that are heading toward the rest of the Army of Northern Virginia. With the arrival of Stonewall Jackson and his wing, Lee was ready to continue the campaign. His defensive position along Antietam Creek, though, was sort of a sham. He was still greatly outnumbered by the Federals, but would bluff with his cautious opposing general. There was one avenue of retreat across the Potomac and back into western Virginia. Directly following South Mountain, if McClellan had pressed his advantage, he very well might have broken Lee. The positive of Lee's position, though, is that he does operate on some fairly good high ground. Now, as far as Antietam, it is believed to mean swift water in Algonquin and this is the name for the creek just outside of Sharpsburg. There were three bridges that forded the creek, only one of which Lee would defend. With Jackson arriving, it gave more confidence, but more would be needed before the 17th was over. We really didn't get too far into McClellan and what the Army of the Potomac looks like, but it's starting to really take the shape we all know and love if you have looked into it. Joe Hooker has been promoted to command the First Corps, something that ticks Burnside off, rupturing his relationship with Little Mac. 
Hooker's First Corps is arguably the best in the army. Sumner is still commanding the Second Corps, but McClellan will continue his strategy of trying to keep him away from messing things up. Darius Couch has a division we can refer to as the Fourth Corps, but he is held in reserve, as we detailed in All for the Union, if you checked out that Patreon episode. We have Porter still in command of the Fifth Corps, but he is going to be held with his roughly 20,000 men in reserve for the battle, which may or may not have been a huge mistake, as we will soon see. Franklin has the Sixth Corps, but he also is going to do very little. Burnside will have his Ninth Corps troops, which will include four divisions if you count in Jacob Cox's men. Finally, we're going to have the 12th Corps, which will be commanded by Joseph Mansfield. These men would be relatively green, as was their commander, who had not led troops into the field. McClellan did have a strategy that was pretty sound, which will go into motion on the 16th. Hooker and Mansfield will cross the creek to the north of Lee's position, while Burnside will move south, pressuring the flanks. The other corps would be held in reserve and used as needed or if at all. It's sort of interesting to see the young Napoleon as the aggressor, but he is interested in getting Lee to move back into Virginia, mind you. I have seen it argued that McClellan does kind of turn the corner here in terms of his command, where he is looking to attack Lee, but it's more for the purpose of preserving Maryland. It's not necessarily for the out-and-out destruction of the Confederate army. McClellan also has not turned the corner in terms of overestimating the enemy troop strength, so that is still going to factor in to Antietam, as we will see. September 16th would see Hooker move into position, and contrary to popular opinion, there is actually pretty heavy skirmishing between his force and that of John Bell Hood at a place called the East Woods. George Meade will lead his division, which is led by the Bucktails, in relatively heavy fighting that will stop as darkness sets in. Hugh McNeil of the Bucktails and the Colonel of the 11th Mississippi would both be killed during this engagement, which would illustrate the severity of the fighting. Crucially, as the sun disappears and stops the violence, Truman Seymour and men of Lawton's division, which is actually technically Ewell's division, will bed down in the East Woods, the Confederates still having a slight foothold there. Hood will ask Jackson to take his hungry and tired men off the line so that they can eat, which Jackson agrees to, so long as they come to support if necessary. At that point, the Texas Brigade under Woodruff and that of Law were both happy to get a chance to be fed and away from the fighting on the 16th. The 17th is actually a continuation of that fight around the East Woods. But let's talk about the naming conventions at Antietam. At the time, it was actually not called the East Woods, so we can get a better idea of the layout of the battlefield. Now, I once had a thought that if one is so inclined to pick up one of the major battles of the war, 
and quickly and easily understand it, then my answer would definitely be Antietam. This, of course, should spark two follow-up questions. The first is, why do you say that? And the second probably is, why do you think about that in your free time? The answer to the latter is, this is why I have a Sephora podcast, but the answer to the former is because it has three distinct phases and three distinct, distinct-ish, I should say, geographic areas in which the battles fought. The northernmost area around Dunker Church, where you have the cornfield, uh, Miller's cornfield, and the West Woods is one where the battle kicks off. In the center, we have the Sunken Road, also known as Bloody Lane. In the south, we have Burnside's Bridge. All of these would receive their names, of course, after the battle. All of the woods were actually Poffenberger Woods because different members of the Poffenbergers owned them. The cornfield, as we mentioned, was Miller's cornfield because it was owned by a farmer Miller. Dunker Church, it may surprise you to know, is not named for Mr. Dunker, but it is actually a religion. Dunkers, which comprised many of the surrounding farmsteads, were mostly made up of German immigrants, and they were Christians who, in their baptism process, dunked their congregants three times as part of the ceremony. So that's where that comes from. Confederate defensive setup is relatively loose. Stonewall, combining with some of Longstreet's men, will be in the north. D.H. Hill in the center, with Robert Toombs, having been reinstated to command in the south, watching the bridge that will soon bear Burnside's name. Throughout this battle, it is important to note that Lee is going to have to move his men around frantically in an effort to stop a Union breakthrough. He is also going to be constantly checking for A.P. Hillsmen who are on their way from Harper's Ferry. McClellan, on the other hand, is only going to physically cross Antietam one time during the day. Many of the troops in his army are green, never having fired their weapons. As we kind of alluded to, to try to get an advantage in manpower, there are some regiments who have been signed on for lesser enlistment periods, and maybe they make it to Gettysburg, but also some who do not. These troops would be thrown into the literal fire at Sharpsburg. Robert E. Lee will use something we talked about a while ago with interior lines. His defense at Antietam is a textbook example, the curving line allowing for him to move troops where needed compensating for his inferior numbers. I do think it is actually interesting when you really look at the battle and you, you look at the units that from the Confederate side fight, like they're over here, they're over there, they do a lot of double duty as it were, so they're, they're kind of all over the place. You really get a good idea of that. McClellan's plan would rely on his two subordinate generals to carry out his overall design. Burnside and Hooker will both go on to command the Army of the Potomac, so they are, in theory, good choices for this task. It would be Little Mac's adversion to deviate from his original game plan, though, that's going to cost him. There are some that say that McClellan should have easily won the battle. 
and I am of the opinion he could definitely have done better. They usually cite the heavy numerical advantage he has, but I do believe that numbers are deceptive. Just as Lee is without a large part of his army due to straggling, so too would McCaw not have the full complement of his men present and ready. Early in the morning on the 17th, Abner Doubleday's division of Harker's Corps will move out of the North Woods. Confederates had set up a battery on the Nicodemus Heights, which would play a big part in the coming engagement in this sector. Union troops could possibly have taken the heights, as there was very little in terms of infantry support, especially as the battle unfolds. Stephen Dell Lee will also have a battery on a ridge around the Dunker Church. This white church would be the target of Hooker's two attacking divisions in Ricketts and Doubleday. Ricketts would advance his brigades first around 6 a.m., artillery fire starting the day. Several important things would happen early in the morning as a result of the trading of barrages. One would be that Confederate General John Jones would be wounded, passing command to William Stark, which is not going to be good for General Stark. The second of which is Brigade Commander George Hartstuff would be wounded from the 1st Corps, so his brigade would falter and not go in support of Abraham Duryea as he moved into Miller's cornfield. On the other side of the cornfield would be Lawton's division, which included his own Georgia Brigade, and that formerly commanded by Isaac Trimble. Duryea, we see, has been promoted to Brigade Command, rising from, of course, the 5th New York. We've talked about them before. But on the morning of the 17th, he's going to be finding himself in a pretty tough position, taking heavy fire from the Georgians, and is going to pull back from his advanced position into the corn. Now, the corn was about 7 or 8 feet high. And by the end of the day, as the famous quote of Hooker states, it would not be so tall. I have seen some counter-arguments that the corn actually wasn't quite that high, but there are written accounts that maybe are embellishing that have the corn as higher, and there are other accounts that also state that you could, you could hide in the corn. So there are some conflicting stories, but there is also terrain that is hidden, of course covered by the corn, that could also make it easier for a body of men to kind of pull back and be out of the potential range of the Confederates. So there is that to also consider. Alexander Lawton is going to attempt a counterattack and be wounded as a result. At one point, an account from a Georgian regiment would state that an officer was by some 60 or so men who did not advance from their rocky defensive position only to realize to his horror that all 60 of them were dead. This illustrates that it is not entirely one-sided. The Union are giving as good as they're getting from the Confederates. Hartstuff's men, under a new commander, would support Duryea and stop the Confederate counterattack. Meanwhile, the New Yorkers of Duryea would be supported by the 90th Pennsylvania of Christian's Brigade, the rest of those men being in the East Woods. Their brigade commander 
was new and experiencing a breakdown as a result from artillery fire. After putting them through parade ground maneuvers, he is going to simply walk away from his men. Sadly, Christian would spend the majority of his life in a sanatorium as a result of the shelling of the rebel guns at Antietam. Doubleday's division would continue the fight in the form of John Gibbon's Iron Brigade, doing some great damage to the Confederates. Having to split his command, Gibbon would send the 6th and 2nd Wisconsin into the cornfield. William Stark would provide reinforcements to the line held by Lawton, which included the Stonewall Brigade, familiar with the Black Hat men from their fight at 2nd Manassas. Unfortunately for Stark, he will actually be killed, leading in the reinforcements, the first general to die during the battle. For the Confederacy, the situation was dire. It was time for Hood to back up what he promised to Jackson, providing aid while men from D.H. Hill's command were also on the way. Now Hood's men were still cooking their breakfast when called into the fight. This may have contributed to their fierce and also wild assault. Nobody is particularly happy at being interrupted when they are hungry and about to eat a meal. Hood is often given credit, but I have also seen him heavily criticized as well. He's going to divide his brigades, sending Law toward the East Woods while keeping Wofford to hit the men from Gibbon's brigade. The first Texas would be the connecting piece between the two brigades, but they would end up advancing directly through the cornfield, taking on artillery fire and fire from Federal infantry. They would come back from the battle with only 56 men unscathed out of around 230, their charge getting away from the lieutenant colonel. Hood, it should be said, should have kept his men together and should have allowed for a greater control of the situation. Now the 4th Artillery had been supporting Gibbon, their former unit commander. Gibbon would make every effort to save the guns. It would be at this point in the battle that John Cook, the teenage bugler of the unit, would not only get his wounded commander to safety, but also join in on a gun crew, earning him the Medal of Honor. Gibbon's two remaining regiments would get into the action to stop Wofford's advance. Law would push back Christian's brigade on the other side of the field before being stopped by the remaining brigades from Meade's Pennsylvania men. Overall, Hood's attack was short-lived and probably better reined in by Stonewall Jackson, who is not without his critics for not also having greater control as well as not supporting Hood when it looked like his Texas men were making a breakthrough. Hooker was out of options from his 1st Corps, so he sent for Joseph Mansfield and his 12th Corps, made up of the men formerly under the command of Nathaniel Banks. In order to keep his rookie troops together, he would advance his men in a mass column, more fitting of the Napoleonic Wars than the modern Civil War combat. To his credit, though, he was going to make it clear the objective as dictated by Hooker to his subordinate commanders. They would engage the Confederates, as well as sweep through the East Woods and the Cornfield. 
but unfortunately Mansfield would have trouble deploying his troops and ride out to the concerned 10th Maine, a veteran regiment of the Valley and Cedar Mountain, who he thought was firing on friendly troops as they flanked the enemy. These men would not actually be Union troops, they would actually be D.H. Hill's arriving reinforcements, and it, that is a fact that Mansfield finds out too late, realizing that the supposed friendly troops were in fact deployed in line of battle. Mansfield would be hit by rebel fire and, as a result, receive a mortal wound. As a major general, Mansfield would be the highest ranking officer to die on the day. Alpheus Williams would take over without missing a beat, George S. Green moving through the woods and into the cornfield. By this time, they would be engaging mostly, as mentioned, with D.H. Hill's men. Garland's former brigades, still commanded by McRae, would lose cohesion, which would almost spell disaster for the rest of the rebels. The 12th Corps would have the best opportunity to see McClellan's plan played out. In fact, one of Green's regiments, the 125th Pennsylvania, had a foothold on the ridge around Dunker Church. Two factors are going to go against Green's men. For one, they are not supported on their left flank, and they had run out of ammunition. This would stall what could have been a big breakthrough. Jackson's forces were pushed into the West Woods. Artillery had withdrawn from Nicodemus Heights and found new positions further south. Reinforcements could bend the balance of power to either side. For the Confederacy, they would come in the form of divisions from McLaws and Walker, and for the Union, they would come in the form of the 2nd Corps and Bull Sumner. Sumner would be taking command of the Confederal forces in the field, which probably hindered their assault. Joe Hooker would be wounded in the foot and leave the field after experiencing blood loss. It is actually argued that if Hooker had not been wounded, if he had not left the field, then there would have been a better opportunity for the Union Army to win the Battle of Antietam here in the northern sector. Sumner would wish to act quickly, but he is often criticized for throwing his forces into an ill-advised attack. John Sedwick's division would advance into the West Woods. On their way, they would move over the cornfield, with many writing that it was difficult to march in rank without stepping on bodies of the dead and dying. This does go to show the ferocity of the fighting. It's said that the cornfield may have changed hands many times, six distinct times it does change hands during the battle. Into the woods went the brigades, Willis Gorman, former commander of the 1st Minnesota, leading the way, followed by Napoleon Dana, which included the 20th Massachusetts, whom we met at Ball's Bluff, and in the rear was Oliver Otis Howard, commanding the Philadelphia Brigade. Sedgwick would keep his brigades close to one another, which would prove disastrous. McClaws and Walker had won the race, and would combine with Jubal Early's troops and artillery to smash into the 2nd Corps. 
So close the Federals were to one another that some units fired into their comrades. This division would suffer the greatest loss on the day. The regiment with the most casualties would be the 15th Massachusetts from Gorman's Brigade, losing 318 of 606 men. At present-day Antietam, there is a monument that is of a wounded lion for the 15th Massachusetts, and it is actually outlined in our podcast cover art, so that is one of the three monuments that is depicted there. Hopefully, I will post a picture on the website so you can see what it looks like, not being an outline, of course. Sedgwick would be wounded as a result of the fighting, the action in the West Woods ending around 10 a.m., with half of the casualties having been suffered on the day. Now, there were two other divisions from the 2nd Corps who had not gone directly in support of Sedgwick, but they would be assaulting the Confederates along a position known as the Sunken Road, which would also become known as Bloody Lane. This farm lane was protected, although there was a ridge line that could be used to fire down into the rebels, so it was not quite the perfect position. Holding this line would be George Anderson's North Carolinians and Robert Rhodes's Alabamians. Blinky French's men would be the first to assault this position, suffering heavy casualties in the process. Nathan Kimball's veteran troops were not enough to dislodge the Confederates after two inexperienced brigades were torn up by the rebel fire. The 8th Ohio would suffer some 49% casualties in a short amount of time. Part of the reason for these high costs for the Federals was that the Confederates had a strong artillery position around the Piper Farm. It would be there that James Longstreet's staff would man a cannon as a gun crew while Pete held the reins of their horses. Honestly, seems kind of like the group project where Longstreet's contribution is to get coffee, but I guess when you're the boss, you can kind of do that sort of thing. Israel fighting Dick Richardson's division would be next onto the scene. They would be led by Thomas Francis Marr and the Irish Brigade. Famously, Chaplain Maximilian Corby would ride out in front of the Irish and grant them absolution as they entered the battle. And I do have an account of the fight from Corby. Our brigade received orders to go in double quick, that is, on a full run. I gave rein to my horse and let him go at full gallop till I reached the front of the brigade and passing along the line told the men to make an act of contrition. As they were coming toward me double quick, I had only time to wheel my horse for an instant toward them and gave my men a hasty absolution and rode on with General Marr into the battle. In 20 or 30 minutes after this absolution, 506 of these very men lay on the field, either dead or seriously wounded. General Marr's horse, a beautiful bright bay, was shot from under him, and also the horse of the notorious Jack Gasson. I shall never forget how wicked the whiz of the enemy's bullets seemed as we advanced into battle. As soon as my men began to fall, I dismounted and began to hear their confessions on the spot. It was then I felt the danger even more than when dashing into battle. Every instant, bullets whizzed past my head, any one of which, if it had struck me, would have been sufficient to leave me dead on the spot, 
with many of my brave soldiers as the bullets came from the Confederates at very close range. All the wounded of our brigade, numbering hundreds, were carried to a large straw stack, which had to answer for a hospital. Here, they had dry straw at least, but during the day, as all could not get into the shadow of the stack, the hot sun made it very uncomfortable for them. Here I saw one poor man with a bullet in his forehead and his brains protruding from the hole made by the ball. Strange to say, he lived three days, but was speechless in death, and had lost his senses entirely. I attended another, a well-built man, in the full vigor of manhood and about thirty years of age. A ball had passed directly through his body. He lived but two days and died in great agony. Now that quote does give us a very concise view of not the action, but also the deadly aftermath of the action. And part of the reason why it was so deadly is that the New York regiments were all firing buck and ball at the rebels. If you remember, we talked about buck and ball before. It makes the rifled musket kind of like a sort of shotgun, but the range does become less effective the farther away you are. So the Irish needed to be very close in order to pack a punch on the Confederates that are in Bloody Lane. So that is part of the reason why they had to get so close, and it's illustrated in Maximilian Corby's memoir here how close they were. Another note is that Mar does fall from his horse, and this is perhaps as a result of the Southern Fire, but there's also accusations of drunkenness, and that's why he falls from his horse as well. The Irish are going to withdraw with heavy casualties. On the battlefield today, their monument is now standing next to an observation tower, where, fun fact, I found out I am, in fact, afraid of heights. During the fighting, John Brown Gordon was wounded several times, a final shot entering his cheek and exiting his neck. If you look up a picture of Gordon, it is always from his left side for this reason. Amazingly, a Union bullet that had put a hole in his cap saved him from drowning in his own blood. General George Anderson would receive a mortal wound, a result of the fierce fighting for Bloody Lane. Because of Gordon's wounding, the command of the 6th Alabama would fall to a subordinate officer, and the subordinate officer would go to Brigade Commander Robert Rhodes for instructions. Robert Rhodes is going to tell him that he should do what he thinks is right, and what this particular subordinate thinks is right is going to be withdraw his regiment. Now, there was talk of potentially shifting to meet an attack by Caldwell's brigade, but instead of shifting, the 6th Alabama is going to be falling back, and that's going to cause a chain reaction with other units in Rhodes' brigade. Caldwell has under his command Edward Cross and his 5th New Hampshire. Cross would tie a red kerchief around his head and rub powder on his face, telling his men to give them the war whoop. The 5th would rival the Confederate yell in their attacks. Artillery and the Confederates reforming would actually stop the Union advance. Israel Richardson would be mortally wounded by some of the southern cannon fire. 
This would take steam out of the continuation of the Union attack around the Piper Farm. For the time being, the center was stabilized. Now, McClellan would have come close to throwing in Porter and the V Corps into the fight, which may have turned the balance of the battle. Sykes and the U.S. regulars would cross Antietam Creek under Confederate artillery fire, but they would not attack. Famously, Little Mac was reminded by Porter that the Corps were the last reserve of the last army of the Republic, which is a bit dramatic and also not entirely true. Darius Couch and his division were still in the vicinity of South Mountain, obviously not engaged in the battle. William Franklin and his 6th Corps would actually cross Antietam Creek and be placed as reserves in the East Woods, so they're also not doing very much either. As we mentioned, Franklin was very much like McClellan, a cautious commander, but he would beg his superior for a chance to actually be thrown in at the enemy. This should be telling, considering who it's coming from. Perhaps if the young Napoleon ventured further into the field, he would realize that his general was correct in assuming his troops could break the rebels. Up to this point, Lee had done an excellent job in shifting his forces around to meet the enemy, once again using those internal lines, but his reserves were all used up. McClellan also kept his cavalry in reserve, a curious choice. Remember, cavalry is used to gather intelligence, so maybe they could have been used to give more accurate numbers on the enemy troop strength. I've also seen it implied that Little Mac was holding Pleasanton in reserve so that he could use him in a grand cavalry charge once his pincer movement was complete. Very French, very Napoleonic. Sykes's regulars would skirmish with men from Shanks Evans' command, so they would at least be involved in the action, but the full force of the 5th Corps would be held at the Middle Bridge Crossing. These troops could very well have been used for the final attack. So let's shift to the final area of operations. Neighbor Jones has his men protecting the Roar Rock Bridge, here on out to be known as Burnside's Bridge. This bridge is the background to the website, by the way, so go check that out. Robert Toombs has two regiments there on the high ground above the bridge, which is pretty impressive, rising some 80 feet, a strong place for some hastily thrown together breastworks. Toombs does have some support, though. Snavely's Ford was protected by Walker's men, and there was an additional brigade under Tig Anderson. Now this is going to be at the beginning of the day, of course. By the end of the day, both of these units have been reassigned to the West Woods. Ambrose Burnside and the 9th Corps were across the creek and ready to go. Their attack was supposed to kick off early in the morning, but it did not, starting at 10 a.m. because the orders did not get there until 9 a.m. from McClellan. For three hours, the Georgians on the high ground would hold off attacks from Samuel Sturgis. Part of this was their resilience, but also part of this was that Burnside and his subordinate Jacob Cox were waiting for a flanking move 
from the division of Isaac Peace Rodman. Now, I have also seen there is some confusion over the chain of command. Burnside was a Grand Division commander, right? He was a wing commander, and Hooker gets taken away from him. So now he only has one core, and that's going to be under Jacob Cox. He's going to be the ranking officer. So instead of having two immediate subordinates, he only has one. So it's kind of like going through this weird bureaucracy of the order comes to Burnside, and he's just going to immediately pass it to Jacob Cox kind of thing. So I have seen there is some kind of criticism surrounding McClellan and his chain of command. Also Burnside for kind of, he's a little bit upset about having had this happen to him. So he's just going to be kind of passing the orders along and being a little bit not so engaged in the fighting. Isaac Peace Rodman was born to Quaker parents and had been a senator before the war, commanding the 4th Rhode Island before being elevated in command. His men were crossing the ford and taking their sweet time in doing so. Part of the reason could be that Rodman does have many rookie regiments in his ranks. Burnside would turn to Ferrer's brigade to carry the position. The 51st New York and the 51st Pennsylvania would lead the assault, using terrain and cover fire to successfully move across the narrow bridge. This is also interesting. I have seen it implied that the previous attacks were going through open terrain and they were ill-advised, whereas there could have been an easier way to get around and use the cover in order to better assault the bridge, and that's what these two regiments do. Now, the story goes that the 51st Pennsylvania was motivated by a returning of their whiskey ration, which had been taken away. Some accounts have it as just a story, but I suppose there is some truth to it, because there is a whiskey keg on top of the 51st Monument, which is at the bridge. Fun fact about the 51st New York is that Walt Whitman's brother is actually serving in the ranks and it does participate in the charge as well. Toombs and his Georgians had run low on ammunition, and they were now aware of Rodman forming on their flank, so they would pull back and prepare for the final assault. Burnside would request reinforcement for the final attack, but he would receive none. His men would take some time to form up together on the other side of the creek, as the bridge was very narrow. Now this is where also Burnside gets some criticism. There are a lot of folks who say, why didn't you just, why didn't you just walk across the creek, right? Well, it is actually pretty deep in places, so that's not quite so easy. And there is some pretty difficult terrain on the other side of the bridge, so it's not like flat ground. Lee has picked this position very well. And he has cobbled together the last defense around Cemetery Hill. Despite being outnumbered, there were 40 guns gathered to the position, so it was impressive in terms of firepower. So obviously Burnside is going to need to get all his ducks in a row before he's going to pull off an assault. A.P. Hill reportedly was on the way, but the question was whether he would get there in time. 
the Federals would launch an assault with Wilcox on the right and Rodman on the left. The 9th New York, Hawkins' Zouaves, would almost gain the summit of the high ground they were assaulting, reaching the stone wall the Confederates had been using for defense. During this time, the 9th would suffer heavy casualties, actually part of Fairchild's brigade, suffering the heaviest amount of casualties for a brigade during the battle. Isaac Rodman would be with them, ready to take advantage of a breakthrough, but he would withdraw to a threat on his flank. A.B. Hill's men had finally arrived and were barreling headfirst for the 16th Connecticut, a Green Regiment on the flank in the exact wrong spot at the exact wrong time. I have seen it implied that the Connecticut Regiment thought that these men were Union troops for two reasons. The first and more fanciful is that Hill's men had taken some of the Union uniforms to replace their own ragged attire. I've also seen it that Hill was flying an American flag, but I think that one is more doubtful. They were also coming relatively in the direction of Snavely's Ford, so they very well could have been more federal troops who were trying to cut off the retreat of the rebels to Harper's Ferry. Whatever the reason, the 16th was brutally assaulted. Rodman was attempting to send word to form them into line when he was mortally wounded. The fighting would rage for some time, Lawrence O'Brien Branch becoming the last general to die at Antietam. With the final federal assault repulsed, this would bring the battle to a close. Lee and McClellan would have a standoff on the 18th. McClellan had thoughts to use the 6th Corps, but called off the attack. Lee was not ready to give up Maryland just yet, and wanted to fight the next day. His army of Northern Virginia probably had less than 30,000 men. I have seen an estimate at barely above 20,000 combat effectives. This math would not sit very well with Lee, who would soon order a crossing of the Potomac and a retreat back to Virginia. McClellan had won a great victory, and we will officially wrap up his campaign next week. Combined, there were almost 23,000 casualties, 12,401 Union, 10,316 Confederate, making it the bloodiest day in American history. This was more than D-Day and more than all previous American wars combined, which is why it has this place in American history. Rufus Dawes of the 6th Wisconsin would write that the aftermath of Antietam was the most harrying of all his battlefield experiences. But why was it so deadly? Well, the artillery use on the field is one reason. Lee has massed artillery in several places, which are good positions. McClellan has long-ranged rifled pieces that do the same. Terrain played a key role in the fighting, as we have mentioned, in several places, including around the cornfield and Bloody Lane. But as this is a longer episode, let's break for now, and we will continue to talk about the battle next week. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. 
The email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening and have a great week.